Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. We are having the weirdest of weeks this week. Before I go on, though, I am going to invite you right now to pause this podcast, to like, subscribe, review wherever you found this podcast. If you found it at the bottom of a dark and stormy dungeon, great, review it there. If you found it on iTunes, which is basically a dark and stormy dungeon, review it there. Okay. (laughs) We're already off track. We're already going down to the, you know, lowest level we can find. It is wild this week. We've unfortunately had a bunch of our guests get taken down by covid don't worry they are recovering and they are coming back to us next week so we're just going to kind of wrap today hang out talk explore life try to come up with some deep sounding thoughts we rarely come up with actual deep thoughts but deep sounding thoughts that you can take away with you into your real life and impress your friends with how's everybody doing today good i'm just going to swing my chair around backwards and straddle it to have this wrap with y'all this is probably um, the most 90s thing that I've ever heard and or seen, Sarah. So so I, John, I just want to share that as you're talking about iTunes being a dark and stormy dungeon, we would certainly appreciate everybody's support on iTunes. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, half this podcast has iPhones and the other half has other phones. And uh, there's some bitterness. It's always Android folks, isn't it? You never hear iPhone folks folks complaining about like or trying to better themselves. It's always it's like, probably because we live in a closed system. I know we do. <laughs> That's nonsense. iPhone people are always trying to one up Android people. What does it feel like to turn the conversation green when you're in a group chat? I don't know. Oh. We we've never needed to have green conversation us us uh, Android folks. So you know we're always silvery, always pointed to the future. Okay, okay. Well, this is a stupid conversation. All but my messaging in, apps in, are red, and I have no idea what you guys are talking about. In general, to actually answer the question uh, about how things are going, uh, it's been a rough couple of days. Coming off of vacation in. Uh, the least graceful way possible with major car issues and uh, computer issues. So I'm just glad to have both a car and a laptop to be able to podcast today. What are you using the car for? So I I live next door to the church. So my excuse for needing a car is not to um, like go to work or things like that. It's actually just to get away from it uh, on occasion. No, no, no. But you implied that you were using the car for the podcast. Oh, I'm not using the car for the podcast. That's ridiculous. We we do this over the internet. So, you know. That studio that you're in looks wonderful and it and the lighting does wonders for your mustache. We were going to talk about Methodism today. So let's talk about Methodism. Uh, we're all United Methodist for now. And um, <laughs> I just wanted to know what you guys think is special about the Methodist Church. Have you always been Methodist? Why do you? Why are we here in this weird largest Protestant denomination that ordains women? Nothing? Okay, here, I'll start. Um, <laughs> I am from the cradle Methodist baptized by a woman in West Texas in the 1980s, still hanging on to this Methodist church that I weirdly love so dearly. I love all the grace that uh, Methodism comes with. Uh, we, I like to think, have extra grace. <laughs> um, John Wesley. No. We don't. 
We, we don't have extra grace. Want, it's well, the same as everybody else's. We have extra categories of grace. <laughs> no? Okay, well, you guys are the scholars and you failed to jump in. So I'm just going to start talking about my mystical Methodism over here. Get it, girl. Says the only one of us who's in a doctoral program. Ooh. Ooh, truth. Truth. True statement. At a Methodist school. Okay, that's fair. I can be academic, but I choose not to be today. So, um... Uh, just to share a little bit. Uh, so my family was a part of a, their local Methodist church for kind of a weird reason. The Methodist conference planted a church in Portsmouth, Virginia in 1943. And um, that also happened to be the year that my great aunt Carol was born. And all of a sudden my great grandparents had five kids and not all five kids could fit in the car at the same time. So they decided to walk to church and that was the closest church to them. So that's the miraculous story of how we became United Methodist. Love it. And, and that was the church where my grandparents met. It's the, and it's through like district activities that my mom and dad met. So I quite literally probably owe my existence to Methodism in some form. You are hella United Methodist. I, I, I mean, it's not even like from birth. It's like from like eons like ago. We, we traced it back in my grandma's family that we've been Methodist for I think seven generations or something like that. But they were Methodist in like New York. So I don't, I don't know. So my whole family is Presbyterian for the most part. So we believe we were predestined to become Methodists. <laughs> Just kidding. I think uh, I wound up growing up United Methodist and leaving the church and then coming back in college so i just found some good people to hang out with some wonderful people to hang out with explore my weird spirituality i mean weird in the most positive sense of the word enjoying a lot of diversity and wonder and beauty and all kinds of religious practices and i really loved that i could be that person in the methodist sphere so you know i really appreciated the variety and the diversity of the church as I went into adulthood and eventually decided to follow a path that would lead me to becoming a clergy person in the United Methodist Church, a pastor. Yeah, and I come, uh, well, my, my entire is Catholic. So I'm a good Metho Catholic, uh, as folks would say. Wasn't really brought up in the church, went to church or to mass you know, on Easter and Christmas, and I started going to uh, my catechism classes uh, or before middle school and never was really committed to church. But that, that early experience really did instill a love for literature and liturgy and art uh, within, you know, a worship experience. So when I came back to the church, around high school age, that sort of, that's always stuck with me. So, and the Methodist church, uh, I really enjoy because it's able to talk to so many different types of people. So again, the diversity uh, and sort of the church as a conduit that really does bring folks together in a, in a unique way. And the, the insistence on grace makes, makes the door at least open for me to kind of connect with people of all different types of faith backgrounds. So that's why I really like and found home in the in the Methodist Church, especially within the theology. The organization, I, I can definitely say, is a bit of a squirrel's nest, but you know, it's all right. We we all have our thing. So I really do appreciate the Methodist Church for what it has uh, gifted me as a 
as a person. So Garrett, I think that's like one of the best, like to use a volleyball term, like that's a, that's a set right there. And you like really gave us a great thing to like kind of continue on in conversation. Methodism, well, United Methodism in particular has been a kind of large tent brought amongst the theological spectrum kind of church tradition since it was formed in 1968 in Dallas. And That has caused us some headaches along the way. And our own structure, as you've pointed to, sometimes gets in the way of us having like productive theological conversation. So, I mean, and many folks might have seen in recent news that over the last several years that over theological differences in terms of like LGBTQIA plus inclusion, that there has been some serious uh, talks about uh, being multiple traditions instead of one tradition an ununited methodist church if you will disunited methodist church Mm, that's good so you know that i think that brings us back around to the the reason why we're doing a series on the united methodist church and that's because it is the united states largest protestant denomination they are also the largest Protestant denomination in the United States who ordains women, which is a significant thing if you spend time in, in quote-unquote conservative. I don't think conservatives are really genuinely conservative in the sense that they're tied to the tradition necessarily, otherwise they'd all be Catholics. But, you know, we can argue about that all day long. But quote-unquote conservative Christian traditions often choose to relegate women to positions that are not they're like leadership adjacent is that what you would say sarah yeah leadership adjacent or not leadership at all um and to your point john i think it's really sticky when we use these terms like conservative progressive liberal traditional it's it's tough because in our larger political sphere right now where the discussion is so thick it's hard to apply those terms that have sort of political baggage to the church because they can mean a whole number of things when you comes to conservative as you mentioned yeah yeah and you know our our purpose here is to explore what the potential breakup of this largest protestant denomination means for the religious landscape you know we talked with helen ride last week about how this is a denomination, these mainline Protestant denominations with a lot of diversity relative to other churches in the United States, how they tend to bring people together. They tend to invite people into a kind of tension that a lot of institutions don't necessarily right now in society. And so it seems fairly significant to me that the the largest of these churches is looking at breaking up along ideological lines you know they'll they'll say it's some kind of you know philosophical academic kind of theology but really to me it it looks like a pure ideology problem <laughs> where you have folks who are of different persuasions who are saying no I can no longer be in community with you and that that is a very difficult thing to wrap our heads around I think And I think some historical context of this conversation is relevant for folks who have been United Methodist for a long time. Like you were used to hearing about this conflict, mostly because people on all sides are really interested 
in engaging in this conversation. So uh, I want to add a little context. In 1968, when uh, the Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren Church merged together to have one common discipline and the largest Protestant denomination that would ordain women in, in the United States, what happened was that they decided to adapt a new set of social principles that would be delegated to a committee to develop and then would come before the next uh, general conference. Methodism is organized into a system of uh, meetings that are called conferences from uh, folks from all around the world to folks just in your local church. And in 1972, that commission brought forward an entire set of social principles, the United Methodist Social Principles, and make us one of the most socially progressive, at least at the time, socially progressive denominations that there was. And they met in Atlanta. They discussed this entire thing over a series of, of hours. And then everything was immediately accepted by this commission, except for one part. Uh, and in 1972, delegates from the General Conference in Atlanta uh, were offered uh, a phrase that homosexual persons, no less so than heterosexual persons, are people of sacred worth, and we are to work towards their equal rights. And the delegates decided to change that. The General Conference can change anything within the discipline that they choose to, and it's by a certain majority of votes or supermajority, some things take more, but uh, they changed the language to the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. And we have been in a fight ever since because we never really agreed in the first place. Like the work of the four-year work of the commission to, to develop the social principles offered the exact opposite statement than what ended up in the discipline. And we have been in this conflict ever since. And actually, I would say over time, the discipline has become more restrictive for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters than, than it was even in 1972. And so people immediately, and Helen gave us some great history about like affirmation and things like that, that really worked towards uh, LGBT inclusion. Um, but people have been actively resisting what's in the discipline ever since. And now folks who are uh, who are a part of more theologically conservative, that's not the same as politically conservative. They're really saying that enough is enough and we're not in the same tradition anymore. I think that's fair to them to say it kind of like that. Yeah. And we're going to have representatives from various groups and people who have inhabit these different spheres of thought and religious practice and belief on as a part of this series we're calling it the um watch series we started with helen ride last week this week we're just kind of reacting to a couple of things that have happened that we're going to get to in a second i do want to say brian just like from a personal note that you know the social principles of the methodist church have always really struck me as a, a really sort of beautiful document and it was one of those things that brought me into a better sense of, like, what Christian churches can be. Because growing up in the South, you know, you tend to en encounter essentially people who are either Southern Baptists or they're people who are calling themselves something else that are Southern Baptists. Oh, and that's and, definitely true in the UMC. Like, that's the, definitely true. 
and and so you know encountering the social principles of the church these these moral ideas you know they're not they're not necessarily political ideas in that they don't demand a particular means of enacting them but they are aspirational ideals they're things that we look for and we say you know we believe that our faith calls us to try to achieve these things together as a community and so seeing those and seeing the really wonderful and beautiful sentiments and ideas and things really i think brought me along at a very early stage in my own sort of personal spiritual journey in understanding what a church could be you know it was the first time i had seen a church that endorsed science explicitly like explicitly not like just didn't have a statement on it not like just was totally opposed to science if it wasn't a religious science that you know that doesn't even mean that doesn't use the word science correctly but you know it it was a tradition that said we will embrace all of these ways of knowing in order to be who we need to be and so i mean it's a really wonderful document it's worth reading i love it oh absolutely and the and i've used this phrase before too like if most of the people in our churches read some of the statements in the social principles they may not want to be methodist anymore because it's not necessarily things they personally agree with but the beauty of the social principles is that we don't hold them as like law necessarily they're as you said they're aspirational so like it's in the social principles that all people have a, should have a right to a living wage. It's in there that we should be caretakers of God's creation. It's in the discipline to um, to advocate for the social well-being of all people and uh, that war is incompatible with Christian teachings and things like that. So, I mean, it's a it, you're right. It's a beautiful thing. It is. And another beautiful thing about Methodism that I love is how connectional we are, though I keep saying and we keep saying that political terminology, you know, doesn't apply necessarily as a one for one exchange for church terminology. There is a larger movement, I think, in the country to to mistrust of larger institutions, institutions and hierarchies. And uh, I do see that reflected in the group that wants to break off that desires to be less connectional and more congregational, speaking of Southern Baptist. I do you guys want to speak to that? Can you explain, Sarah, what connectionalism versus congregationalism means? Sure. So in the United Methodist Church, we are organized into groups and we have bishops and jurisdictions and uh, we are connected to all United Methodists everywhere all over the world. We're a huge church. We operate by the same principles and the same rules. And this can be expressed in any number of ways. A, a really beautiful way that I heard of recently was a local pastor here, or an elder, but a pastor that was near us, had a sister he hadn't spoken to, to in 30 years in uh, Arkansas, and she passed away suddenly. He called the bishop's office in Arkansas and was trying to arrange for somebody to do a funeral for uh, his sister who was alone and had no family connected to her because they hadn't spoken in so long. And the bishop's office of the Arkansas conference paid for her funeral and had a pastor there to speak so that this pastor didn't have to do his sister's 
long lost sister's funeral. I mean, it, that's a silly, it's a small example, but it's, I don't know, we're just, we're part of the body of Christ. So the connectionalism is the representation that the church is the body of Christ in the world, and we can't ignore the other parts of the body. And then a congregational church is one that is just their congregation. They answer to themselves and that's it. So the downside, or for some people, the downside of connectionalism is that you have to sort of live in community with people that may not look like you or worship like you. And also we pay apportionments. We pay a tithe of sorts to the global church to do mission, to pay for Episcopal wages, to pay for congregational developments at new church plants. And it's it's not a tax. It's a, it's a way of giving into something that we all believe in and are connected to. But a lot of people don't like paying those. Well, I, I think it's also really helpful to understand that being a part of this connectional system has like real benefits to congregations. So a Methodist church is never, not for a single day, not going to have a pastor. Where in congregational settings, it is fairly common for folks to go months or sometimes even years without finding a pastor. Well, Methodist churches don't have to find a pastor. They're sent. Uh, They're sent by the bishop and the cabinet uh, and the annual conference to go and to be the spiritual leaders of those communities. And sometimes that works out for both pastors and congregations, and sometimes it doesn't. It's not always a perfect fit. Um, we've, I think we've all had that experience in one way or another, whether when we were lay people or now as our experience as clergy. But, uh, and every congregation is still different, even though we are connected. Uh, my, my congregation, uh, the Garden in Norfolk, is not like Sarah's congregation in St. Matthew's. It's not like uh, John's congregation in Ellery or, or Garrett's in Brandon. So we're all, we're still all in this together. We're still all doing similar things, but it's all very contextual too. Like it's not that they're all carbon copies of each other. But Sarah, you also brought up about kind of like where our differences are. How do we govern ourselves and how do we relate to each other as a, as a central like premise as like part of the major reasons as to why there's talk about a split, a breakup within the UMC. And uh, it's from my deep, like I've had deep conversations with folks who theologically are very different from me. And a lot of it is uh, from, if I like just take them at what they say and nothing more is that they're tired of us not really living together by the rules that we've, that the church has agreed to. And I, I can't fully say that I, I blame them. I've I've done my best to keep the discipline. I don't think any of, any of us have kept it fully. We all make mistakes, but there there definitely are folks who have intentionally not followed what the discipline says. And I think that's a fair criticism even if it's done for the sake of ministry. So let's talk about the events of the past week cuz part of why we're doing this series is to kind of track what's going on and look at what that means for larger religious trends in the United States and this past week was a big week for a couple of reasons. One of which is the 
large global conference that the Methodists called to deal with this was delayed again. It was delayed from its normal date in 2020 because of COVID and has been delayed again, once again, because of the continued presence of COVID and the difficulty of international travel and getting visas and technology-related challenges that would affect people who are trying to gather around the globe and you know, the issue of getting people together in multiple time zones to do business at, at places where they have internet connections. And uh, it has really shined a light in many ways on the technology disparities that we experience around the world. But that's a whole other conversation. But let's just talk a little bit about that delay, and then we'll talk about the other announcements that have come out this week. Yeah, the delay, um, you know, at least for me, is definitely not a surprising development, especially with a global pandemic going on. And as much as Methodists often love to say that and hold to this is like, we don't want to promote harm. And um, what we mean by that is, you know, in a very practical sense, physically, if we are together, the spread of a disease is easier done. But also, uh, the longer we put uh, this task and draw it out, we're doing harm to uh, our brothers and sisters who are a part of the LGBTQ plus community. So we're finding ourselves in a really hard situation because no matter what we do, someone is being affected, not so positive. So uh, I know that folks are wanting to hasten our separation and others are wanting to figure out a way that we can all uh, still be unified in some sort of way, you know, preserve the connection. So at least from my point of view, none of the None of the um, none of this is terribly surprising, but it is very frustrating. No matter your view on whatever particular issue. Likewise, uh, as a global denomination, we have basic administrative tasks to complete. Uh, we don't have a budget. Uh, we need to approve some other major thing so other parts of the denomination can function. Um, we have folks who are bishops that are retiring and they need to be uh, replaced. And those um, other uh, individuals need to be called out and called to take that position. So we can't do any of that without going through general conference. And so, like John said, there are a lot of challenges to that. And I think in terms of like kind of the dynamics that we've been talking about beyond just our structure, it, it should be noted that we had a general conference in 2016 that was heavily, heavily like about the subject of us not being able to live in community together again. Uh, and that tension that's there in between folks who are a little bit more progressive and folks who are a little bit more theologically conservative. And then we had a called special session of the general conference about only this topic in 2019, in which like language in the discipline was and literally punishments for pastors were strengthened if you were in violation of these aspects of the discipline. Uh, they didn't really apply to other aspects in the discipline, only to uh, re aspects related to LGBTQ folks and pastors who perform ceremonies for for those folks. And then we, and then the 2021 has been delayed. So as Garrett talked about and Sarah's talked about, I, I, it's just helpful to know that we've kind of been in this pattern for almost what will be six years. <laughs> um, and that's a long time. Some might say we've been in this pattern for 30 years. 
or or 50, you know, whatever. In recent weeks, like it's not only that the general conference has been delayed, we also saw the launch of several new like kind of budding denominations that might come out of this. Uh, Several weeks ago, or maybe it was a couple months ago, I went to a Liberation Methodist Connection like interest meeting. And uh, that's for folks who are on the more progressive side. And I, and I had this thought, like, and I never have this thought in most UMC gatherings. I was like, I'm the most conservative person here. And, and I, I don't know if anyone else on the Zoom, because you can't see everybody in that kind of format. But I, I was sitting in my, in my house going, I'm really, I really am the most conservative person here. And I've never had that feeling in a UMC gathering ever. So it was a it was a brand new experience. And then uh, this past week, there was the announcement of the global uh, Methodist church, which seems to be a little bit more theologically conservative. Seems to be. OK, so they have a complete set of like doctrine and discipline, like at least that is uh, proposed that seems to be related to uh for Methodist folks, the Good News Movement, the uh, Wesleyan Covenant Association, and things like that. It's some of the same folks, uh, the Confessing Movement, folks who have been in a more conservative mode for an extended period of time. Those are the folks that lean more in the direction of a kind of fundamentalist religion, correct? I'm not sure that that's a fair characterization. Um, they are certainly um, not as they they are not for celebrating LGBTQ ceremonies in local churches. That's not something that they're going to be willing to do. And they're certainly for having more uh, clear boundaries within the discipline that people are going to adhere to. And there's not going to be a question about that. There's there's not a lot of gray in terms of LGBTQ folks. But that being said, like I know some folks who feel that way on this topic, and yet they will be the first person to join me like at the Black Lives Matter protest in Virginia Beach. So it's it is not it is not universally applicable. There is probably a wide range within that, but I mean I don't think we can deny that there. I don't know. I don't. I, the terminology is hard. It is. And I mean, you know, we're always, I think, perpetually generalizing when we try to talk about this stuff. I will say I do know some people who definitely don't believe in evolution and think Jesus rode dinosaurs who are in that camp. Yeah. And I also know folks in that camp who are actively against women in ordination and think that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist group. So it spans. But there are also people of color in that group. It's, it's an interesting group. <laughs> I think the one thing that I often tell folks, uh, regardless if they're more progressive in the middle or or conservative, is that people are not monoliths. You can't just view a person on one particular subject and know instantly everything about them. And I think our comments have definitely led to a lot of credence about that. And I say that more so coming from a race perspective rather than anything else. Like, And it's that diversity which makes everything so hard. But there's, at least for me, there's beauty in that. And there's beauty in that tension as well. It, it makes a community stronger because they view a particular issue in so many different lenses that problem solving becomes, I don't know, at least a little bit more viable, um, may take longer to get things done. But that's that's the one thing that I feel like is will be threatened in some way 
as we progress on towards general conference and then after that. It's very strange to talk to some conservative folks in 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 the church sphere, not on not viewing it as a political thing that, you know, like, yeah, Black Lives Matter is absolutely necessary and we need to stand with our brothers and sisters but then talk about another thing and you feel like this is like the most conservative person you've ever talked to so talking about methodism you know it's it's complicated like we've said and i feel like there is not just one fix you know trauma experience especially by people of color or generally oppressed people when things don't pan out or justice doesn't overwhelmingly win you know that trauma is like generations deep so it's you know same stuff different day and you just got to figure out how to put the next foot in front of the other where others who also rallied for that particular cause will be disheartened and dismayed yeah it's going to be a long long time coming but for me you know i don't expect anything to be resolved fully or to my satisfaction maybe even in my lifetime and for me i'm okay with that but that doesn't also silence the cries of justice still um so you know you just got to figure out how to deal with it at least from my perspective but doesn't doesn't let you off the hook it's weird absolutely and I, I think one of the real challenges that we really haven't talked about so much yet is that kind of the nature of being a global church has a lot to do with this. So as General Conference makes decisions, there, there are delegates coming to General Conference from places where I'm not saying I, I agree with this. I'm just saying I'm trying to understand where they're coming from, where being LGBTQ is punishable by death and it's not culturally accepted. And it's, and I'm not saying it's always culturally accepted here. I think that's a growing trend in the United States, but it's not necessarily in every place where um, our delegates are coming from to the general conference. And so we have to, I know just from my own personal story, like my opinion on this, like dramatically changed while I was in college. Like it, it went from one end to the other. But it was because I met people who, like, I could tell were called and gifted by God, and they also happened to be LGBTQ. And so I think, uh, just from my own experience, that it, once you engage and understand and see it for yourself, that God has called people to serve in ministry and that God can bless relationships that are different from your own, that that opened a door for me. And so I, I'm willing to, I, I want to journey with people through that. And so like, I can't, I can't just throw them away. Like, I can't just say, I don't want to be in a church with you anymore. Cause that was me. Well, I think living also in that connectional system is a constant reminder that regardless of what we do organizationally, we're going to have to live with each other in some capacity. You know, it's going to be, in the community, it's going to be in the country, it's going to be in the world. And if we're unable to find ways to live together, then what happens next? <laughs> and what happens next is inevitably going to be something that is, to call back to the social principles earlier, incompatible with Christian teaching, right? You know, if we can't make peace, then that's what leads to war, metaphorically, literally, what have you. And so the inability to resolve our conflicts at the personal level and at the community level and at the national level is 
something that is a huge problem and a huge challenge that we have to surmount together as people. And it's a tough line to walk. I mean, I, like you, Brian, recently told uh, my DS that uh, I like to walk with people, that I haven't always believed the things that I believed, and I can't expect people to be in the exact same place that I am, nor can I call to them and say, hey, get over here. <laughs> get right with Jesus now. Um, even if I believe that, that that my position is correct, I mean, I, our position as Christians should change constantly in response to God's grace. The problem I have is that it just, the waiting is so hard. And the harm that I see being done is disproportionately against LGBTQIA plus folks. I feel for my WCA and conservative friends who say that they feel oppressed in our current system or neglected or overlooked, but I don't see that as the same level of harm as is being done to other folks. I don't speak for the podcast, obviously, but uh, I just want to unequivocally state that I unabashedly support all all of the spectrum of LGBTQIA plus folks being fully in the image of God and fully participatory in the church. I think the podcast can and has at the very least implicitly endorsed that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think we have too. I, I, I'm just... It's a tough tension. I mean, I, I don't I, want to be cruel to people who aren't there. And I, again, know that my position could and will change, you know, and has. It just it just is hard when you see firsthand harm being done. And, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think our conversation with Helen last week is so, so helpful in talking about trying to be a church that brings people together, to be in a ministry literally of reconciliation. And my challenge like now is, and I probably serve in the most progressive, well, Garrett's about to serve in the most progressive church um, out of all of us, but I currently do. And it's the challenge for, for me is recognizing that there are so many other ways that we could harm people in this process. Like 40% of our church is in Africa today. And there's all of one reconciling churches in Africa. There's one on the continent. And so when we're really thinking about what this is, like we can talk about like an American centered church and how colonialistic that is to our brothers and sisters in Africa when arguably in getting people to know Jesus, in some ways they're doing better than we are, like, which that's the mission of the church. Like, and I'm not trying to say that there's not harm being done. I know that there is, there's absolutely difficult things, but we, it's part of this greater tension is that we have to have a process that allows as little harm as possible to happen. And unfortunately, like there's not an easy way to do that because we're harming people no matter what we do. And we've, we've come down really heavily on the do no harm thing. It is important, I think, to emphasize that the second stage of our denominational ethic is do good and do good proactively and as much as you can, whenever you can, wherever you can, however you can, et cetera, et cetera, whatever that apocryphal John Wesley quote was. But let's let's close there. <laughs> we are coming to the end of our time for the week, and it is time to talk about something that is making us happy, that is bringing us joy. I will go first. What is bringing me joy is I have finally completed 
our shop on bookshop.org. We are making progress as we continue to form and craft and play with this whole podcasting thing. We are aiming to, in the future, begin to bring in revenue that we can then send out to really great and wonderful causes to help feed people and shelter people and care for folks and help them, you know, just improve their lives in various sorts of ways. You know, we really want to partner with some really wonderful and great nonprofits in the future. And that begins with raising a little bit of revenue. So you can check us out at bookshop.org slash logosish. That's bookshop.org slash logosish. You'll see a list of the books that have been featured on the podcast, the books that we are reading, the books that our guests have recommended, all of that really cool and wonderful stuff. There's some really neat things on there. And if you purchase from bookshop.org, you are purchasing a book that is helping to support local bookshops. You are helping to support the podcast, and I guess technically you're helping to support bookshop.org as well, but I think their cut is the lowest. So I'm going to stop talking now. I'm kind of rambling at this point, but know that we are trying to do some good in the future to help out our local bookstores, and we are looking forward to other sorts of future endeavors as well. So stay tuned. So for me, I, I had a, I, I've had a rough couple days and since uh, returning from our great vacation that we took. But yesterday, as I was at the Apple store spending way too much money, I had a really lovely conversation with my, with my like service technician who was trying to help me out with my laptop. Uh, his name's Josh. And it was a delightful conversation about the church and kind of being a more inclusive kind of congregation and found out he lives like three blocks from my church, even though I was eight miles away uh, at the Apple store. So, you know, just little glimpses of the kingdom or the kingdom. How about that? Amen. Preach, I guess. For me, it's been a, sort of a whirlwind of uh, basketball weeks. So I will soon and hopefully be accepting a position at another church and uh, that will be in North Carolina. So uh, we will still stay a tri-state podcast. So don't worry about that, ladies and gentlemen. Also, Brian's mustache is still wonderful. So there are things that you can count on. There is a sound ground here that you can find. But we're really excited about that. Uh, my wife and I will be hopefully moving up soon. And I find you know it's really by the... Uh, grace of God that and God moving in our lives that these opportunities were seen and we followed after it. So really excited about that. Still looking for the details on what all that is going to look like and timeline wise. You know, I feel really blessed by the folks on this podcast, everyone I've talked to and uh, the folks that I've been serving uh, as their pastor for uh, the past year or so. So uh, just excited about uh, what a new season would look like. Um, and still just waiting on a few things to confirm. So it's been crazy. I'm also really excited not to have to ride 15 hours for Christmas. I thought that was awesome, Brian. You should definitely do that. You, we all should just drive to Florida for Christmas. We are very excited for you, Garrett. My joy this week is simply that our dog got a haircut and she looks real cute and she doesn't smell bad <laughs> yet. 
I'm sure she'll fix that. That really is a joy, especially in this house. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Rosie is our most frequent guest on the podcast. Well, guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. It was a weird sort of episode. It was kind of off the cuff and a little bit random, but thanks for sticking with us. You can like and subscribe at all the major podcast locations. You can check us out at logosish.com. Garrett is writing our blog post for us this week. We will be back next week with Michael Beck, who is going to be sharing with us about some cool uh, and original organizing and digital ministry design that he is doing. So stay tuned for that. And also, if you have questions or comments about what we talked about today, give us an email. No, we do have an email address. What is it? <laughs> it's logosishpod <laughs> at gmail.com. Yeah, send us your thoughts. We'd love to hear them. All right. See you all next week.